Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. Today I am on HMS Belfast in the centre of London. This has to be one of the first true summer days and the sky is perfectly blue. I'm on the ship in, well, the middle of the Thames, river that runs through the centre of London. And behind me, I've got that iconic Tower Bridge. And in front of me, I've got London Bridge with a Union Jack flying off it. So I don't think you could be in anywhere that's kind of more British, really. Well, there's a London bus going by right now, that, that red iconic figure. So I suppose that really tops it. I'm here today to film a new TV series for the History Hit YouTube channel. And to kick off our new special month dedicated to the Korean War. And the amazing thing, as we'll learn about HMS Belfast, is that it was one of the first responders to that crisis that occurred as the North Korean military pushed over the parallel and down into South Korea. To take us through this initial part of the history and to really give us some background to the conflict, we have my old friend and an old friend of this podcast, Dr. Ian Johnson from Notre Dame University in the United States. Now, Ian is writing a brand new book on the Korean War, the UN response to the conflict, and General Ridgway, who we will hear lots and lots about. So it's great to be able to do this in person on HMS Belfast. Forgive any knocks and noises that go on in the background, but it really is just great to be back in person doing these sort of things. I know you're going to love it. Enjoy it. Drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us to keep doing this and bringing you fantastic histories that we really, really do love. So here is Dr. Ian Johnson on the Korean War. Enjoy. Ian, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? Terrific. It's great to be in person for this session. Not only in person, we are on HMS Belfast. This is an incredible place to be. Yes, it's an absolute treat. Is this your first time here? It is. Not in London, but on this ship. Yes, it is. Your first time on this piece of history, piece of Korean War history. My auntie this morning sent me a picture of me looking all chubby and fresh-faced at the age of about 11, standing in front of those giant guns on the front of the, the ship, looking like just as proud as punch to be here. I've got the same kind of chubby, happy face today. It's pretty good. This is an exciting place to be. It's absolutely so much history. 
Well, let's get stuck in to this history. So HMS Belfast itself has an incredible history. You go back to when it first enters service from 38 to 39. It has this incredible spell during the Second World War. It's made for the Pacific Theatre, but it actually gets used quite a lot in Europe. We're talking through the Arctic convoys. We're talking through D-Day. You know, this is what this light cruiser is all about. But after the Second World War, it gets sent off to Korea. Why on earth is a ship from the Royal Navy sent to Korea? So the story of the Belfast and the Korean War actually begins right as the Second World War in Europe is ending. The Belfast is transferred to the Pacific after Germany's defeat, or as Germany's defeat is rapidly approaching, to prepare for the invasion of Japan, to participate in those landings. Of course, thankfully, that is unnecessary, but the Belfast remains in Pacific waters for most of the next seven years through 1952. As a result, the Belfast is one of the larger vessels available to the Western democracies when North Korea invaded the South in the summer of 1950, in, in June 1950. In the panic that strikes the Western democracies and the, most of the members of the United Nations Security Council, they're asking rapidly for forces that can rapidly assemble and assist in the defense of South Korea in the opening days of the war when things looked pretty bleak for the Southern Korean government and for UN forces there. The Belfast arrived within a matter of days in the waters off the Korean coast and was one of six Royal Navy vessels that participated essentially in providing fire support as UN forces retreated down the peninsula. It was actively engaged in combat operations in July and August of 1950, trying to slow down the North Koreans. So it arrived just in the nick of time to make sure the North Koreans didn't get any further than they did and didn't get a resounding victory rapidly. That's right. And as far as we can tell from sources that are available, they succeeded in slowing down the advance of North Korean forces along the main coastal road. There were supposedly about 400 casualties inflicted in one massive bombardment in mid-July. It was the six-inch guns here played a big role in slowing down the North Koreans, at least you know, adding hours and days to the efforts of the UN to regroup. Well, let's zoom out of this a bit and look at the broader politics of the situation. What on earth made the North Koreans feel that they would be able to be successful in such an incursion into the territory of the South? To understand why we get the war at all, we can zoom out and look back again at the Second World War. So Korea had been a colony of the Empire of Japan. Its status in the aftermath of the Second World War was very much uncertain. It was not a major topic of conversation at the wartime conferences. Everybody knew Korea would transition to some sort of independence, but what that looked like remained very much a topic of conversation. At the Potsdam Conference, there was a rough agreement that, that Korea would probably be divided into occupation zones, north and south, between Soviet and American forces. This was actually something of a concession by the Soviets, as they were very much on the spot and American forces were not. But nonetheless, after some haggling at the end of the war and in the months that followed, Korea would be roughly divided along the 38th parallel, a decision made actually by junior army officers, essentially trying to figure out where U.S. forces should stop. So hang on, so this wasn't a decision made by the great leaders of the Allies. This was a decision just made on the fly almost by the officers that were there. That's right. Now, one of them, coincidentally, would later become Secretary of State Dean Rusk. So these were people who had some experience with diplomacy, but they were army officers who had been given the task of coming up with some sort of occupation plan in the six, eight months after the war actually ended. So we have a divided Korea with a Soviet zone of occupation, an American zone of occupation, a trusteeship council that's set up by the various victorious allies to manage Korean affairs with the assumption that 
elections will be held and some sort of unified government eventually formed from the Korean Peninsula. Of course, that's not quite how things played out. The Soviets brought in Kim Il-sung, who was a, had been an officer in the Soviet military during the Second World War, someone very much tied to Moscow, who quickly began setting up a communist regime in the North with all that that entailed. In the South, there was a lot more instability. There was an active communist insurgency. There were a number of different political parties vying for control. A refugee, a, a man who'd spent much of his life in the United States, Zygmunt Rhee, was essentially the American candidate on the spot. Eventually, under UN trusteeship, elections would be held. The North refused to participate. Only in the South were elections held, and Rhee won those elections and became essentially the head of state of a, the new Republic of Korea, which formed in the South. So this takes place in 1948. By this point, the Cold War is well and truly on, and we're already seeing the formation of opposite regimes, each claiming control of the entire peninsula, legitimacy, but in fact only with control of half, North and South, respectively. So this is a very rocky, turbulent period. You've got one side that has a kind of imposed military dictator in many ways. And then down in the South, you've got that rough wranglings for democracy that causes instability, but hopefully more stability in the longer term. But all of this is by the by. Would it be fair to say this is almost a sideshow for the Western powers at this point? Do they forget about Korea? Is it not important? Completely, yes. And you can see the big headache in the United States is when can we withdraw our remaining occupation troops? They're actually stripping many of the regiments out of this area. There's only a small provisional occupation authority left. General MacArthur, whom we will, I imagine, spend more time with we today, will, yep. he is basically given Korea by default. He's in Japan. He's considered the man on the spot. So Korea simply added to his portfolio of responsibilities. He only visits once, he gives it no time, he essentially views it as a place to send officers he doesn't like. This is very much a sideshow, even in the kind of just the regional picture from the United States perspective. So all of this surely has a bearing on the reason why North Korea jumps in and invades. Do they think that this just doesn't matter and they're not gonna have any rebuffing of their offensive military measures? That's right. So Kim Il-sung, the dictator of North Korea, he begins badgering Mao Zedong, who wins the Chinese Civil War in 1949, and Joseph Stalin in Moscow for support in uniting Korea under his authority, basically as soon as these elections are held in the South. He wants to go in, wipe out South Korea, unite the peninsula under his direct control. He is considered something of a nuisance by both Stalin and Mao from what we can tell of the documents. So is it not appealing to Stalin and Mao to have a united Korea? Are they even less bothered about the peninsula than the West? They're somewhat more concerned given the proximity of their borders, both the Soviet Union and China at this time, as they do today, they the Russia and China share a border with North Korea. So this is more important to their interests. Which we forget, it's a sliver, isn't it? It is. Russia. They have like a, a sliver of a border. That's right, yes, so there is a border. So this was viewed as something more concerning to them than to the United States. But for a while, at least, they were quite satisfied with a partition of Korea where their half of Korea, North Korea, was controlled by a relatively loyal vassal in Stalin's case. Nonetheless, we see Il-sung continuously bothering Stalin and Mao about providing support, munitions, weapons for his crusade to unite the peninsula. He begins very actively courting Stalin's assistance in January 1950. Stalin initially rebuffs him, but there are broader geopolitics at play, in particular between Mao and Stalin. Stalin is concerned Mao is too independent. He's succeeded in uniting his country with very limited, in many instances, support from the Soviet Union. 
Mao starts talking to the Yugoslavs, who are not best friends with Stalin in this period. Stalin's somewhat concerned that he and Mao are jockeying for the position of preeminent communist state in this period, control of international communism. And so in part for these reasons, we suspect, he decides to greenlight Kim Il-sung's invasion of the South in the spring of 1950. March, April, May, there's extensive correspondence. Mao, in addition, is brought in. There are some negotiations. Essentially, they'll both provide some limited support, but the expectation is the North Koreans will rapidly overrun the South and present the world with a fait accompli. There's an assumption that if Kim Il-sung wins quickly, there won't be any intervention by the United Nations, by the United States. It will simply be over in a matter of weeks, and there will be a united Korea under a communist flag. So when we look into those opening stages of the conflict, what sort of forces are we talking about from the North Koreans, and what do they face? That's right. The North Koreans at this juncture have a fairly well-armed and well-equipped force trained by Soviet advisors. They have combat aircraft from the USSR. They have several hundred tanks. They're getting a lot of World War II surplus, but the South Koreans have almost nothing. Again, this is not an area of priority for the United States. As NATO is getting organized in Europe, that's where munitions go if there's any spare munitions not to Asia at this period. So the South Korean army has maybe 38,000 troops along the border with no tanks, almost no heavy equipment. Their air force, I believe, consists entirely of training aircraft, nothing capable of performing combat operations. The U.S. forces in country, it's essentially a skeleton division. There are essentially very few combat forces, even from the United States in country. And the North has a sizable military force, well-equipped, there is a sense on paper that the North Koreans very well might succeed in overrunning the peninsula with great rapidity. So how far do they manage to get down before they even begin to be even so slightly pushed back? Yeah, so on June 25th, 1950, the North Koreans cross the border and invade. Uh, Seoul falls within three days, the capital of South Korea, the biggest city in the peninsula, the heart of, of industry and, and so much else besides. UN forces, uh, we'll talk about how the UN gets involved in a moment, but UN and South Korean forces fall back to Busan in the southeastern corner of the country, a very small area. Basically, they control roughly 5,000 square miles of a vast peninsula. That's all that remains under the control of the Republic of Korea and its partners from the United Nations. That's pretty far south. And that's exactly where the giant US naval base is today in Busan, I think, yeah. It is, and so it's important to note, I've spent a little bit of time in that area, Busan has a gigantic port. And even at that time, it was a, a very large and efficient port. The facilities had been greatly expanded by the Japanese. In fact, uh, when I talk to historians who work on the Vietnam War, they point out that by comparison with the Vietnam War, the port of Busan could handle more traffic than all of Southeast Asia, I believe, combined at this juncture, certainly than Indochina. This is one of the larger ports, certainly in Asia at this period. Right, so this is vital. You lose this, you lose the war, because this is where you're going to start getting the reinforcements coming through and starting making that fight back. So let's talk a little bit about MacArthur, shall we? To what extent is he red in the face here? And is he red in the face with anger as well? Yes, yeah, so Douglas MacArthur, of course, is a fascinating, very controversial figure. So when the Korean War begins, he's 70 years old. He is a decorated war hero. He's the son of a very famous but somewhat jilted military officer whose career had been destroyed by politics. MacArthur is a prima donna in many respects. He's built up a coterie of very devoted officers around him and made sure people who don't think he is godlike are not really in his vicinity. He's got a press corps that essentially follows him around. He's got some very loyal political uh, supporters in the United States, particularly within the Republican Party at that time. Uh, Henry Luce from Time Magazine fame 
is also a very big MacArthur booster at this point. He's in a bubble. He's in a bubble. That's a, a great way to put it. He lives in this massive complex in Tokyo. And it's important to keep in mind. So, of course, he'd been quite successful in the Second World War. He'd built up a reputation for himself. He's given this position of essentially the proconsul of East Asia by the U.S. government. So for five years leading up to the invasion, he is operating something as of a dictator in Japan. He's helping write their constitution. He's reorganizing Japanese politics. He has enormous power and prestige. And he's not used to being told what to do. And this is important when we understand the story of Korea. So when the North invades the South, again, Korea had been a backwater. It had not been a place of great import. MacArthur, of course, is caught flat-footed. His intelligence service spent a lot of its time trying to keep the CIA and other intel agencies out so they could monopolize information to Congress. They weren't as good at predicting some of the events that would transpire in the war itself. They're caught flat-footed a number of times, but almost immediately MacArthur senses an opportunity. Within three days of the invasion, he's begun drawing up plans for what will become the Incheon landings, this famous left hook to try to defeat the entire North Korean military in one fell swoop. So although he's furious and caught completely unprepared with almost no troops in Korea itself, he senses opportunity very quickly and will try to take advantage as the war unfolds. So this is an experienced but still very ambitious man. Does he have any political ambitions maybe for the future? He does. He had sniffed out a run for president in 1948, Republican nomination. He will do so again after his very dramatic firing by Truman in 1951, which in fact, and I've seen some documents that's hinted this, may have been driven in part by his plans to run against Truman in 1952 for the presidency. All right, we're going to come to that dogfight in a minute because that sounds pretty juicy to get into. But tell us about these landings then. So this big left hook, how successful are they? So basically, United Nations and South Korean forces have been forced back to Busan. They were holding this perimeter essentially along the Nakton River, a very small condensed area. And maybe it's worth taking a moment and understanding who exactly is fighting in, in the South before we get to Incheon. Should we? Please do, yeah. Yes, yeah, so when the North invades the South, again, there are only a handful of American troops in this small Republic of Korea army at this time. But the United Nations decides to intervene very quickly. And there were several reasons for this. The UN, as originally envisaged, was intended essentially to function as a sort of global constabulary, a policing force for the whole world. It was intended to have its own Army, Navy, Air Force, nuclear arsenal. The UN Security Council had extensive prerogatives for essentially authorizing the use of force. It was the only body in theory that had legitimacy in declaring war. Now, it didn't really work very effectively as a policing force, in part because the five veto powers, China, France, Great Britain, the United States, and Soviet Union, kept falling out with each other, kept disagreeing. In particular, the Soviet Union didn't necessarily like to play ball in the early phases of the UN with particularly American ambitions for what the United Nations would be. In fact, the Soviets would issue the first 57 vetoes in the United Nations Security Council to prevent the UN from intervening in all sorts of early crises of the Cold War as they unfolded. But Stalin had withdrawn his representative from the UN Security Council over a protest about the seating of China. And so when the Korean War begins, you've got relative consensus among the British, French, Americans, and Republic of China, Taiwanese governments, that something should be done. Very rapidly, they issue a series of calls to arms. So the day the, U the North Koreans invade, the UN Security Council holds an emergency session, says, bad, condemns the North Koreans. Two days later, they issue Resolution 83, which essentially 
says that all UN members capable of providing aid should do so. The idea, again, had been the UN would have its own military forces. That hadn't yet happened. In fact, never would. So this was ad hoc. Anyone who can send something, please send something. And then on July 7th, essentially the United States is told, you are in charge of the UN effort in Korea. General MacArthur is made United Nations Commander-in-Chief of the war effort in Korea. So he's essentially put in, in charge of what would become a multinational force of 22 different states, 16 of whom sent combatant forces to Korea, dominated by the United States, but obviously with important contributions by a number of other states, who are now arriving in our story piecemeal into Korea over the summer and fall of 1950 to assist the South Koreans in resisting the North. So that's the situation when we have the Incheon landings, okay. essentially. So Incheon itself, the plan essentially is to land at the port of Incheon, not that far from Seoul, about 150 miles from the actual combat zone in the southeast, and cut off the entire North Korean army in one fell swoop. It is enormously ambitious. It's MacArthur's most brilliant moment, without question. In fact, the Joint Chiefs of Staff thought it wasn't going to work. A lot of his subordinates thought it wasn't going to work. He towed insubordination a couple of times trying to convince a number of fellow officers in Washington that this would work. You have to understand why there was so much reluctance. The plan was to land just two U.S. divisions, about 20,000 men, and the North Koreans out would have a much, much larger military force in total. So outnumbered force landing way behind North Korean lines in a terrible place for an amphibious landing. The port of Incheon has super high and low tides, so it's a mud flat at low tide. No ships could get in. At high tide, the only place you can land are on concrete piers. It was believed the North Koreans had mined the harbor. Even small defenses would probably have prevented landings from succeeding. But the North Koreans were caught largely by surprise, overwhelmed, and very rapidly two divisions, one army, one Marine Corps, landed and proceeded to begin cutting off the entire North Korean war effort in the south. They begin fleeing back north with rapidity. Something like 130,000 North Korean soldiers were captured. And essentially, in one fell swoop, the North Korean war effort had completely collapsed in September of 1950. Aeroplanes, spacesuits, condoms, coffee, plastic surgery, warships. Over on the patented podcast by History Hit, we bring you the fascinating stories of history's most impactful inventions and the people who claim these ideas as their own. We uncover exceptional stories behind everyday objects. We managed to put two men on the moon before we put wheels on suitcases. Unpack invention myths. So the prince's widow immediately becomes certain. Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time, can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is arguably the most famous person in the West. And look backwards to understand technologies that are still in progress. You know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you want to live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever. So subscribe to Patented from History Hit on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to catch new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. 
Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hundred and thirty thousand made prisoners of war, and all from that swoop round to cut off the teeth of a nation's military from its tail. All those supplies coming in from the north are just going to be shut off, and everyone's just got to try and flee. But this isn't going to plan, to put it lightly then, for the North Koreans. And this is surely embarrassing for Mao, and it's bloody embarrassing for Stalin. Is this a bit too successful? Yes, that's a good way to put it. So even as the North Koreans are falling back, Joseph Stalin, who was on vacation when much of this was transpiring, on October 1st, he writes to Mao, and they had a, a tense relationship, I think would be a fair way to put it, and essentially tells Mao, I think it's time to introduce six or seven Chinese divisions to this conflict. Now, the Chinese had already transferred large numbers of men to Manchuria along the Korean border, but they had been reluctant to intervene directly for a variety of reasons. But now Stalin is not exactly giving orders, but he's telling Mao, again, who, whom he often had a, something of a competition for prestige, he's telling Mao, it's time to go in. There are a series of very rapid negotiations between Soviet, North Korean, and Chinese representatives. Who's going to give what? The Soviets say they'll provide air support, munitions, supplies. The Chinese will provide the manpower, the army, essentially drive UN forces back and they'll try to save North Korea, or at least as much as they can. Now, very little of this is known to General MacArthur, in part because his own intelligence is telling him the Chinese will not intervene. And there were reasons MacArthur very much wanted that message sent back to Washington, despite the fact that the CIA and British intelligence were all telling him, actually, we think the Chinese are building up in preparation for intervention. So the moment comes where the Chinese are about to launch their first phase offensive, this probing attack across the Yalu River to basically begin pushing the United Nations forces 
back. And MacArthur's troops were spread out, essentially in unsupported positions, essentially pursuing what they believed was the remnants of a broken North Korean military. They did not see the Chinese coming. So they were rushing back over the agreed border into North Korea and pushing maybe a bit too far forwards. They went all the way to the Chinese border. So you can understand that there was very much a security concern in China and the USSR. Now, what's fascinating about that story is that MacArthur was probably, well, he was exceeding his orders in doing so. He had this plan to unite all of Korea under essentially an American-backed regime. Washington, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the British, who were supplying the largest allied contingent, all thought this maybe wasn't such a good idea. In fact, I've seen documents in the last week where the British chiefs of staff are telling Clement Attlee, please tell the Americans to slow down to halt along the 38th parallel because we're very concerned about the strategic ramifications. This might lead to World War III if the Soviets and Chinese jump in. This might be a nuclear war. Well, that's it. You're, you're talking about strategic ramifications. What you mean is nuclear war. This is the Cold War now. We know that the Soviets have got the bomb by this point. You know, you are destabilizing that delicate balance of terror. That's right, very much so. And MacArthur wasn't particularly concerned with that. He, in fact, even suggested that maybe bringing some nuclear weapons into the conflict or striking targets in China might be a good idea. Oh, so drop nuclear weapons on an Asian country within five years. And this is Again. something that Truman said, we cannot nuke another Asian country. This is even essentially a line that he has in cabinet minutes. The imagery, the idea that the United States would drop another atomic bomb in East Asia. There was a sense that the United States would lose any prestige, any sympathy that it might have All across credibility. Asia. Yes, and credibility in the region. So is it at this point that Truman and MacArthur start to fall out seriously? Well, they didn't necessarily get along great from the start. Yes, they have a series of minor and growing conflicts where Truman thinks that, that MacArthur is exceeding his authority. The Joint Chiefs of Staff are concerned about reining MacArthur in because he seems to be performing quite well in the field. So there's this tension between political authority and military authority with MacArthur very much unwilling to listen to Washington when he thinks, essentially, he's got the war almost won. But he doesn't. Because when you have this many divisions of dedicated Chinese troops that are coming up to the border, and let's be honest, probably thinking that they are well and truly defending their homeland, because they don't know how far MacArthur is going to maybe push in to China. The chances are that you're not going to be able to hold up against them for very long when you've only got your two divisions deployed. So how quickly do we have this seesaw situation take hold where the Chinese start to push through? Yes, so end of October 1950, we see probing attacks launched by the Chinese. MacArthur claims they're actually North Korean troops. Even as Chinese troops are being captured, even as they're admitting, in many instances, they're fighting for the Chinese government. And it should be noted, ostensibly, these were all volunteers. The Chinese were trying to avoid direct escalation. Many of them, in fact, were nationalist troops who'd switch sides late in the Chinese Civil War. They're supposed to be proving themselves. We see a number of instances where actually troops who'd fought for the Japanese in Manchuria and are now in the communist Orbit are being sent in, so very much a ostensibly volunteer label on these troops, that they're proving themselves politically. But as they come in, MacArthur denies that the Chinese are there for weeks. And it's not until the second phase offensive where the Chinese send 18 divisions 
across the border in huge numbers and essentially began to wipe out entire UN divisions. The second US Army division essentially annihilated, 50% losses, lose most of their heavy equipment. The first US Marine Division encircled at the Chosin Reservoir, a number of South Korean divisions completely destroyed. At that point, it's clear the Chinese are in Korea in huge numbers, 300,000 plus men outnumbering the UN forces pouring across the Yalu River. That's November of 1950. And it's also clear that either MacArthur has lied or he's a bit stupid. Yes. So which is it? <laughs> well, there are a number of different views on this. Some people think MacArthur was quite happy to have the Chinese in the war. He had been advocating at this juncture that the Republic of China, so Chiang Kai-shek, the defeated remnants of the nationalists, be used to invade South China. He'd been pitching that even before Communist China had entered the war. So. Some people think maybe he wanted an expansion of the war. He wanted to be the man who liberated China. It's unclear. It's some combination of incompetence, this bubble, as you said, that develops around MacArthur, his, his intelligence not being very good, General Almond, who'd been providing it, stretching elements of the truth to fit MacArthur's agenda, and possibly an actual interest in getting the Chinese in the war. But Truman can't stand for this. Certainly not. So what happens next? MacArthur's not left in power, is he? King MacArthur, I'm going to call him from this point onwards, he's like the emperor of the region. He is, and he's behaving exactly that way. So Truman has a problem, though, because MacArthur is very skilled at managing the American media. In fact, he had managed to win Dad of the Year in 1942 while commanding U.S. forces in the South Pacific. I don't know how. He manages to win these accolades from venues that are really shocking, and he's enormously popular. People think he is a genius. He's done it in Sean. He'd managed to blame the United Nations, the British, and Truman for the Chinese intervention. He claimed he had plans that were you know, dismissed, essentially, for dealing with this issue. Later says he might have used nuclear weapons, perhaps. In any case, Truman has a problem because you've got a very popular field commander operating independently with huge public support in the U.S. And Truman's own ratings are not particularly high in 1950. He'd been losing popularity. So Truman is at a loss. He's trying to wait for the right moment where there's some sort of misbehavior so bad that he has justification for dismissing MacArthur. And it should be noted, even the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they were somewhat intimidated by MacArthur's reputation. So even his own military advisors, even the famous George Marshall, were all not sure if he should fire MacArthur, even as MacArthur grew increasingly brazen, even communicating with members of Congress criticizing the president, well, essentially fighting a war supposedly under the presidential authority. But even the brightest sun becomes a supernova and burns itself out. So what happened to MacArthur? Well, the intervention of the Chinese did damage his reputation. UN forces essentially collapsed over the course of December and January 1950-51. In fact, Seoul fell again to Chinese forces. U.S. forces fell back. The commander of the 8th Army, the largest UN force in Korea, he's killed in December 1950, an incredibly high-ranking officer to be killed. Now, he's killed in a car accident, but nonetheless, this is the single longest military retreat in U.S. military history. This doesn't look good. So even the press is starting to get a little, a little less keen on MacArthur. In addition, MacArthur had essentially been ignoring orders. He'd exceeded orders a number of times. He encourages U.N. forces to go back north into North Korea, despite clear orders from Truman. Listen, if you stabilize the situation, you cannot go too far. We don't want the Soviets jumping in now, too. He violates those orders. And again, he's essentially engaging in politics and politicking back in the United States, writing letters, one of which gets read on the floor of the House, that clearly is a critique of the president. And at that point, in April, April 11th, 1951, Truman has had enough, and he publicly fires MacArthur. 
Wow. I mean, that is insubordination writ large. You're writing a letter to Congress that basically badmouths the President of the United States. So who does Truman choose to replace him? So interestingly, the person who steps in is a very different personality, but probably the perfect person for this job, this combination diplomat and warrior role that's really required in the Korean conflict. So he picks General Matthew Ridgway. So Ridgway is a fascinating character. I could talk about him all day. He's very much at the center of my book project. Ridgway had been essentially a, a something of a, a junior diplomat warrior in the interwar period. He was 15 years younger than MacArthur. He missed World War I from his perspective. And he spends the 20s and 30s doing a lot of diplomatic work. He is sent as a part of a delegation to supervise free elections in Latin America. He visits China. He speaks a number of foreign languages. He's teaching at West Point. But this is a guy with a lot of international experience and a lot less of an ego than MacArthur. Not someone who really courted the politicians or the media the way that, that MacArthur had. He's most famous when the Korean War begins because he'd essentially been responsible for building up U.S. airborne forces first commander of the 82nd Airborne after it's organized. He ends up commanding the 18th Airborne Corps, which contains some of the best divisions in the U.S. Army. After the war, he's sent to the United Nations, an unusual role for a decorated combat officer. He's essentially given the job of being a, an army diplomat as the U.N. tries to build its military forces. So he's sent into Korea after Walton Walker, the commander of the 8th Army, is killed. He's poor guy. He's pulled out right before Christmas. He's got a young kid. He's told, listen, emergency, you need to get to Korea. He describes reading briefings on the long flight over, getting a haircut to try to look more military because he'd been doing a lot of diplomatic work. Rushes into the Korean theater as U.S. forces, U.N. forces are collapsing. But in his first four months, under MacArthur, interestingly, MacArthur is initially somewhat despairing and Ridgway's given enormous latitude. In that time, he essentially reorganizes UN forces. He delivers this really remarkable written address about why UN forces are fighting in Korea, why American soldiers are fighting under a UN flag. Not something a lot of people, everybody thought that the famous slogan was, we're dying for a tie, you know, to get back to the 38th parallel. And he said, no, it's about these bigger questions about free elections, democracy, the right to choose your own form of government. And if we don't make a stand here, we'll have to make a stand much closer to home. So he, he brings this, this spirit with him to Korea. He goes out in the field and he interviews a ton of men, including very junior officers and enlisted personnel. What are you doing here? What do you need? What's your morale situation? A lot of them are pretty despondent. They're retreating. The Chinese are coming. The weather's terrible. And he essentially breathes life back into UN forces. And over the course of the spring of 1951, he manages to halt the UN retreat and then push back, retake Seoul and get back per his orders from President Truman to the 38th parallel. Remarkable military transformation. He's in theater 55 days with a collapsing military formation, turns him around and ends up retaking Seoul and, and fighting back to the 38th parallel. So when MacArthur is insubordinate, Truman says, great, we've got a man on the ground who can step up one spot essentially and take his boss's role. So Ridgway will step into that role in, in April 1951 to oversee the UN war effort. And not to oversimplify it, but that's kind of the end of it, because that's where it still sits today, on that same parallel. That's right. So it should be noted, after MacArthur is relieved and Ridgway is essentially pushed back to this line, not quite the 38th parallel, a slightly more defensible position, but roughly that line, the Chinese launch a massive offensive, the Chinese Spring Offensive. Million men, single largest offensive of the war. But Ridgway has done a lot of things tactically and technologically 
He's also sacked a lot of incompetent leaders. And essentially, UN forces are able to hold some remarkable battles. The Battle of Kapyong, Imjin River in April 1951. The Chinese are bloodied enormously, suffer 10 to 1, sometimes 20 to 1 casualties. And at that point, Mao says, okay, North Korea has survived. It's time to start talking. And in the summer of 1951, they open armistice negotiations, which will eventually linger for two years, but eventually a ceasefire will be reached. That's where we stand today, essentially. Ian, there is a reason why we've had you on this podcast so many times. It's because your knowledge knows no bounds. That was truly fascinating and has got me wanting to read so much more about this. What's the name of your, uh, your new book? Do you have a working title? When can we read it? How can we get more of Ian Johnson? <laughs> well, the working title right now, my editor's choice, Ridgeway's Moment, The United Nations, the Korean War, and the Origins of NATO. There's an after story here about the origins of NATO, which also has left a lasting legacy to this day, which is a key part of the story, maybe for a future Are you going to come back on and tell us about that? Uh, anytime. You want to invite me back to the HMS Belfast? Well, we need to go and have a, explore the HMS Belfast now, I think. Absolutely. All right, Ian, thank you so much. <laughs> my pleasure. Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.